0: So, this is Office Hours, a place where students in an online program can have the experience of sitting in a professor's office and getting all those little things that you only get um, just in random conversations. And today, I have a friend of mine, a fellow minority, um, a fellow, minority fellow, that's a weird way to say yeah. that, Noelle. So, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll jump back into what we're, we're talking about. before. The-
1: well, hi. Okay. Hi there. I'm Noelle Chappelle Zamudio. And um, I live in the uh, outskirts of Cleveland, Ohio. Born and raised, where, you know, represent. Um, and I am currently in private practice um, in Beechwood, and I am growing my practice from a solo practice uh, to a group practice. Um, at this point, I have actually three people who um, who built under me two of them are part-timers and then i have uh one actually i should say so the third person is will be on board as of uh june 1st and she'll be a full-timer and that's and at this point i kind of have like a a niche group practice so to speak because everybody is an mft so represent for the mfts
0: so i gotta ask you lebron like, what's the, what's the, what do you doing?
1: You know, so what's you're gonna like think I'm weird, but I don't have cable because I'm cheap in that way. That's so, um, actually, when we won the championship, I was on Cleveland.com just refreshing, <laughs> looking at the score, uh, and then I watched highlights. It's been like fifty on years, and you just didn't yeah, even so, watch the game. I freaked out and like ran around my living room. But um, I didn't go, you know, over any relative's house because I just never paid for cable and never will. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, but I'm definitely just because, you know, when you're from Cleveland, Yeah. Um. I went, went to college out of state and moved back to Cleveland. You just love Cleveland. Like, it's just something about it. Yeah. Um. So it's a great place to live Ooh, and Steve raise family. Like so, County. yeah, I'm excited for this year. And I hope, you know, I'm always rooting for the cab. <laughs> and, and my mom is from Akron and I went to church in Akron. Uh-huh. So. I also and I went to university back Akron Akron. for a master, so I'm all for Akron and Cleveland.
0: But so, so what are you guys gonna gonna do this year? Because you guys lost Kyrie Irving, right? I mean, LeBron can't carry the team by himself. I mean.
1: Well, you know, it's whenever Cleveland wins, it's always America, anyway. So,
0: <laughs> you know,
1: it's, you know what I mean. Like, so it doesn't even matter if if we're gonna win, we're gonna win. Yeah. You know. <laughs> So that's just how we are. And if we're not, I mean, we still are hardcore right. sports fans, stuff like that. We're loyal. We're very loyal, loyal in Cleveland. That, is, that yes. is one
0: thing I do appreciate. I've never met somebody from, from Cleveland who is not loyal. And I respect that. You know what I mean? We are loyal, people. And it people. makes that we... victory that much more sweet just because yes. you're just loyal. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, we are very loyal.
0: So before the the, uh, the intro, we we're talking about practice building and you were talking mm-hmm. about just um, how your practice is growing. And I think the question that I have whenever I hear people talk about that is, what is your referral source?
1: Oh, OK. So um, so I have, I guess you could say three primary referral sources. So um, the first one that I had and still use is psychology today. I. Um, I would say I get about 67% of my referrals and I do try to like write that in my medical record system in each client's file, like who I'm I ask them on intake. Um, So psych today would be the first. And so just trying to really create a profile that speaks to um, the client's pain points, so to speak, um, and shows just what your, what your niche areas are um, clinically. So, you know, at first your first, uh, instinct is to just kind of be like, I'm a jack of all trades. I can help everybody. But the more specific you get, the more likely people are going to come to you because you're kind of seen as a specialist, um, even though we're MFTs within a specialty. Um, so that's one. Second one is therapy for black girls. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there's a, there's another podcast uh, called therapy for black girls. And the creator, which um, I believe her name is Joy, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, she's a psychologist. She um, created a, um, a, a directory on therapyforblackgirls.com uh, for her podcast listeners of um, black female clinicians all around the country. Okay. So I and um, there's also like a, a private Facebook group for um, people who are part of the directory to kind of help them with practice building. So um, I'm a member of that directory as well. And i say I would I would get about maybe like 25% of my referrals that way. And then now that I've been in practice, um, so I started working in a group practice and I was fortunate to be able to carry all of my clients over pretty much, except for from one, two insurance companies that I wasn't paneled with. Um, I've, I've been able to start building a word of mouth kind of refer, referral base as well. So whether that's, you know, okay, I'm a mom. I would like to bring my kids in as well. Or if it's like, okay, I'm a, you know, a, a client. I've told a friend about it. You know, yeah. and they're calling. So yeah. So over time, I've been able to also build that third word, um, that third referral source of yeah. word of mouth.
0: I think um, it's so interesting because my experience in my life <clears throat> has has been that. I was taught to go to school and do well, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. would be enough. And Now that I'm in the workforce, there are all these small skills that I just wasn't taught that I'm having to learn. Right. And one of the things that is a reoccurring pattern seems to be people like you, they get on at a group practice, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they get paneled on insurance. Mhm. And then they build up their name, whether it's with clients or with... Um, Um, like other providers not other providers other the
1: community kind of in the community Mm -hmm. right and then they Mm -hmm. hop off of
0: that Mm -hmm. and they go on their own and they continue to see private uh, interns people and and they do things like psychology today and whatever other network that they're in like therapy for black girls and Mm -hmm. then after that's been going on for a few years many people choose at that point to go into private pay right Mm -hmm. where they might have a reduced client load but they will up mm-hmm. their rate. so They might go from like 120 to like 180 or whatever. And they'll see. Yeah,
1: that's not my plan.
0: That's not your plan. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's fine. And I'm not saying that it has to be that mm-hmm. way, but in order to, yeah. but I think what I was taught was you come out, you get licensed, and you can jump straight into doing that, which isn't, which isn't right. true. You have to build well, up I, to that level.
1: Right. And so I would say for me, so just by the by, so because I'm very passionate about serving um you know, ethnic minorities right. and and underserved populations. So I will always accept uh, Medicaid managed care. I will always accept commercial insurance. Um, and I'm not necessarily looking to make my money off of, um, you know, private private pay clients. That's never been my goal. I know a lot of people when you're looking at a lot of coaches and things like that, that's what they're kind of saying is the ultimate goal is right. to, be a private pay practice for me. That's not because that's just not the population that I'm interested in serving necessarily. So, you know, the people who are like, I
0: mean, for your uh, mic. I said, so, watch out. Oh, I'm for sorry. Your mic. I'm were, not speaking were, into the mic. You were hitting it.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> I talk with my hands a lot. <laughs> so, um, so I'm probably like hitting my chest. Um, so, uh, but for me, I would say, because I just have my niche population, So, and I know that insurance and Medicaid managed care is just part of it. Um, But anyway, so I think the other thing is that when we were, you know, in masters and doc programs getting our our training, clinical training, there were very few people, um, at least, you know, and I think that this is kind of the pattern, is that many people who are in academia don't have as much, they don't have as much clinical experience as we we would expect and certainly not as much um, in terms of actually running a business So that they can kind of let us know like how to do business. So for me, I was kind of lucky in that uh, my master's um, internship uh, instructor was a woman who only taught that class. And she was a very successful private practice um, owner, group private practice owner. So she kind of put the bug in my ear, so to speak. Uh, and she uh, about private practice and she did give us a tour but she didn't give us any of she gave us very high level information and you know very general broad. um and I was a uh, someone actually told me during our dog program about this group practice that I um, was employed you know in at first and I was so blessed because he actually coached me basically he was a bit he's, he's still my mentor and um he showed me how to run a practice yeah. so I came in the first day he knew I was, that was my goal and so he just showed me how to do it
0: yeah. I billing that that and everything It's such a big deal and my experience is the same I, I've definitely had many professors um, who most of my professors did do clinical work mm-hmm. but when they, when they see three to five clients at a time right? And they've been mm-hmm. working in a program for 10 years. So, so they have not a huge referral base, but they have a small referral base. Mm-hmm. That's just not the same as having to make your living. living, seeing 30 a week, building insurance, you know, having to manage referral sources, having to navigate the the insurance the world. Like, it's just not the same.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and so I think you know, schools, whether that's masters or doc programs, would do. They would be doing their. Um, and I've been kind of thinking about this, but they would be doing their students such a, um, and they would, would be so so honorable. Or it would be such an honor for them to, um, maybe like even have some workshops yeah. to point people in the right direction. Even if it's just like, you know, buy it, pick up a copy of, you know, building your private practice or how to be a wealthy therapist. Because the other thing is that we have a lot of you know, there are a lot of great coaches out there and some of them give away some of their info for free, but a lot of it is just unattainable for, you know, beginning practitioners in terms of the cost. Yeah. So,
0: no, that's so you know, true. because you're also paying for licensure fees, you're paying for supervision fees you're trying to get your CEUs. You're also in debt mm-hmm. with the school, and you just like mm-hmm. I can't pay one more thing. Like I gotta pay for right. another right
1: <laughs> for a small fee of like five hundred bucks a month. Well, who has that? I mean, that's. <laughs> You know, at least where we live, you know, the, I don't know about you, but, I mean, it's, you know, that's a, no, a goodly I, amount no, of money. Absolutely so, not. I
0: don't have that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so then you have to be kind of, you know, lucky to have some sort of mentor, mentor who's yeah. willing to give you this information for free as a way of kind of, like, paying it forward.
0: Yeah. I think that's also, like, I love that you said that because that's part of the heart behind this blog is there are so many little things that you don't know that you don't know as a student, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And teachers don't always know what to tell you. And even if a teacher knows them, they might come out just in the conversations you have at, you know, we had a, a library and you'd go in there be- between classes and you you know, go in there um, just to study and teachers might come in and might sit down and you just start talking. you would learn all of these things you would never know if they just didn't sit in, your, in the office and just talk with you
1: yes so that's
0: mm-hmm. part of the mm-hmm. purpose of this podcast and I, I love i just love what i what i hear you say
1: well thanks so,
0: so so are you doing any of that at your local colleges yet or are you just thinking about
1: um not in the local colleges but like for the people um for the few people who i have not working underneath me like that's kind of like the expectation so that's the model the business model that i came out of that group practice was this is a place for people who want to like start their own practice like kind of like your practice on training wheels and you know we let and we let you take everybody with you that you that you want to or can, and that's the same with my model. If you would like to stay, you're welcome. But we're not holding on to people. If that makes sense. So and so we're
0: that sounds so evolved. I I I have never heard. Granted, my experience is limited, right? But I have not. That's not that's not the norm. Like, how did do you know how your mentor fell into that mindset? Like, how did he? I'm the kind of person where he was like, I'm gonna be a practice that grows other practices. Cause that's, I mean, that's high level. That's so. I,
1: I think you know. some of it comes from like his morals or spiritual beliefs. Yeah. To be honest, um, so he was a, um, he's like heavily involved in like his church, um, and he, you know, his practice is kind of like it serves everybody, but for people who want to you know, integrate like spirituality into their practice, into the counseling, he's open to that. So I think some of it comes really out of his, um, you know, out of his just personal kind of values. So um, yeah, so and so for me, I try to I like that because I think that was like, I really wouldn't have left it if it wasn't for the fact because he was not trying to hold on to people like there was really like this was the boundary in terms of money which was actually very fair and generous he was very generous um but i needed more <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so that's the only reason why i said okay it's time for me to get ready to to go and he actually helped me to like find a place
0: yeah
1: so um wow. so you know
0: wow.
1: yeah so i want to be that pl- that kind of i just saw how great it was for me so i wanted to continue that because that was just a wonderful place to work, and that's the kind of place I want to have. You know, for for the clinicians under me, I want to be that sort of experience for them. For those who want to, you know, build their own practices, because I think the belief is that there's more than enough to go around for everyone. So you don't have to,
0: you know, <laughs> worry so rare, though. But Every,
1: there is. I mean, I mean look at, look at, at this
0: scarcity this. mindset. But
1: well, because here's the and here's the the common sense truth. When people see, especially, like, when people, when you start to build your niche and all that, when people call, they want you. They don't want necessarily, like, anybody else, if you ferry them off to, like, one of your, somebody else, you know, and they kind of go to them, hopefully there's a connection, but most people in this field, they're coming to you because they like your profile yeah. or your video, you know? So, and, and then there are people who are going to, like, you know, your Jordan stuff, you know, over Noel's. So there's more than enough. Everybody needs counseling. There's more than enough, you know, to go around. So I think, like, if you trust in that flow, that if you have an open hand, things can flow into that hand and things flow out of it. But if it's closed, it's hard to flow in and it's hard to flow out.
0: Man, this is weird because, like, you're speaking directly to me right now. (laughs) <laughs> and I've actually used that same exact metaphor in the past, which I know we haven't talked about.
1: I know. Uh, we haven't talked in like over a year. In,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> or maybe two by now.
0: I think, I think, I think it has been two. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt that in myself, you know, especially when you, you feel this like scarcity creeping in. You do want to hold on to what you have. And mm-hmm. the reality is, if you do, you do not open yourself up to catch the new opportunities.
1: hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, I'm saying that as someone who is struggling to open up his hand right now. Like, I know it's good, but it's still it's still you know, you want to hold on to what you have because at least you have mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and can I say like, so when I first started out, I may have had, well, my, uh, I probably moved maybe about 15 client hours a week. So first what I did was I did what he told me to do, which is what he does is because of the population most people can't make it every week. It's just too much, you know, so, but they can make it to every other. So my clients, I see them every other week, but I may have, if I see, if I'm working 30, you know, just over 30 hours a week, I may, most of my clients are coming every other, I may have 60 something clients. Yeah. But so one thing I did was I positioned myself that way. Mm-hmm. And then well, I on your, just.
0: On your profile, you said, I'm a, uh, I see people every other week. Is well,
1: I kind of tell them like, so when I do my intake. I'll tell people, this is how, you know, I have an electronic practice, this is where I'm located, you know, I give them my little elevator speech spiel, and that's part of it, is that most people come every other week, once I'm listening to kind of like why they're coming, however, if there's a crisis, if you're in crisis right now, or, you know, you know, I'm, I'm assessing you, and I feel like it would be beneficial for you to come every week, you know, but most people, because, also just because of my niche, like, I'm not most of the people who I um, see are not dealing with like, like most people. Let's just put it this way: probably don't need medication. Right. Does that makes sense. Yep. So, like, it's not they're that's
0: not. That's a very acute. elegant way to put that. That's reverse very true. Yeah.
1: So they're you know they're not acute. Yep. So I think that that this model works for my population, yep. but depending, it may not work for others'
0: Everybody's population. Right. Um, so oh, do you? Call can I say them one more other thing? Them-
1: Hmm? Oh, go ahead. You go. You go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: So when you do that every other week, do you call them to, like, remind them about appointments? Mm -mm.
1: Because Because I'm a one woman show at this point. I literally just um, within the past six weeks started hiring virtual assistants. And I'm still in the process of, like, tweaking the processes, I guess, for them. Um, But so I I use uh, I have a paperless practice, so I use simple practice. And um, so, yeah, so it comes with appointment and email reminders, um, text and email reminders. So I, and I don't call people to remind It's you show up where you don't. And then like if you if you don't show up well, let me and you never you,
0: because if they're getting email reminders, they are getting reminders. You're just not calling them.
1: Correct. They're getting text and email. Yeah. So they're getting a reminder 24 and 48, 24 and 48 hours, different modalities before their appointment. Um, and, if, and I also have it set up so that people can go in and self-schedule. So, but there's a cutoff, so you can't cancel your appointment um, earlier than 24 hours, which is my cancellation policy. I mean, later than how, how can I put it? Like, so if it's 23 hours, you can't cancel it. Let's right. put it that way. So, um, so then they have to shoot me a text, and I only text about appointments, like nothing clinical. I uh, don't, not even your billing, because that's just confusing just like hey i can't make it okay great see you next time but if i never hear from you again then i just assume you're not coming and and then i i don't schedule you yeah. so and um you know unless and i wouldn't call unless there was something concerning clinically you know where i felt like this needs to be followed up on i'm worried about them are they you know are you okay yada yada um so i kind of do let people know like that's how i operate typically yeah. Uh, is, is the every other week. Now, unless it's something like an EAP, then I might run those up really quickly. And then, you know, we might move to a different schedule after that. Um, so the other thing that I was going to say is that in terms of like going back to scarcity, so I used to get have a lot of anxiety about like, especially I would say last the first six months, I used to have a lot of anxiety about just like, oh, my gosh, am I going to have enough clients?
0: Like, what if, uh,
1: what if this, what if that? Just kind of like catastrophizing, so to speak. Um, so what I decided to do was kind of like just do this mindful practice of, okay, every time I start having those anxious thoughts, I'm just going to redirect myself and just trust that things are going to flow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of became like a ritual for you of, okay, this is the sign that I need to recenter myself
1: yes and then after a while like i was like oh man i have i don't even remember the last time i worried about that you know so now i'm like having these people calling now i'm worried about like the fact that i've got all these emails and calls coming and i can't keep up yeah you know uh, so that's another thing now yeah. to like
0: <laughs> to I practice that. mindfulness I that. about i think that's something that is so needed these rituals and i mean i'm a christian and there's so much that goes on with spirituality, yada, yada, yada. But one of the things that I, that I know for sure is that these rituals that we have, they consistently reorient us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think oftentimes we just forget to practice them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like they don't even have to necessarily have to be um, like there's a lot of flexibility in that, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah. So, so you like, just
0: the, center yourself and say, all right, let me just take a second and just have faith right now that this is going in yep. the right place. Like, that's, that's yep. awesome.
1: Yep. And so for me, like I did, I would also sometimes integrate, like I have, you know, the Be Anxious for Nothing mm-hmm. verse. So like just kind of integrating that, you know, into it. Like that's part of like that's, And that's why I have to believe that things are going to work out, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah. So that's just awesome. kind of how i I kind of did it, so or what's I'm your doing ultimate
0: it. Goal with this? Or do you even know? Or you're just riding the wave, or?
1: Oh my gosh, this is deja vu. Um, <laughs> uh, you
0: just so had the my, same conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, or just I feel like we had this conversation, but I know we didn't. I don't know, whatever. So, um, but my ultimate goal is to have multiple streams of income, and this is one of them. So I would say um, once I get my group practice off the ground, I will scale. I will scale probably down to 20 to 25 client contact hours a week. Um, so just like one, basically taking a day off, you know, starting to phase that out or giving them, giving those clients to people who I feel are good fits. Um, and, you know, of course, focusing on the, you know, making sure the group practice is running smoothly. Um, there are some things that I would like to do. Uh, oh and I need to graduate. So I haven't graduated. I don't know if you graduated or not.
0: Oh um, yeah, I've been done. Oh okay. A yeah so I have not
1: graduated. So I just finished writing my chapters one through three and turned it in Monday at like midnight. Oh wow. So,
0: so you haven't yeah. actually proposed that either. I
1: no, I basically took like after I did Wait. my comp
0: <laughs> You must be so busy. <laughs> like this is yeah. like, crazy.
1: Baby. I had my baby. I had my baby my second baby during uh internship. And then I did my comps this summer. That was in the spring. I did comps in the summer. And after that, I kind of, like, worked and didn't really work on my stuff like I should have been. So I just kind of worked. And then I was like, okay, let me hurry up and get out of here. So I decided, like, this past fall, like, okay, let me just hurry up and write this, get this stuff together. So my goal is to have the Ph.D. by by December. So um
0: Look, good luck, because that is – which I – so – my wife and I were expecting our first any day now. All and right. One of the things that we, like, talked about was, like, I cannot have a kid and be in the Ph.D. program. Because I, I just know it's going to be so much work. And you hear stories of people who are ABD, which for doesn't mean years. anything, right, for, like, right. years. Yep. Um, and if you do the math, like, basically the week after I graduated is when she got pregnant. And it's just, like. all right. Yeah. But, like, yeah, because you can't. It is, it's, people will try to do everything at one time, but you actually end up putting something off.
1: Right, right. So that's what I had to do. I had to just put off the writing. Yeah. So honestly, what I typically do is I just know I'm going to have like a, uh, a night with no sleep, and I, I write like in um, chunks. So I'll just sit down and just write, 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 write.
0: Um, so let me ask you this, because you're, so, you're just so, I just love this. And, and um, remind me to send you, I just did an interview. With Dr. Angela Bethia Walsh, um, okay. who is just fire. She's out in Georgia. Okay. Uh, African American does motivation. She's African American psychologist. Okay. She's just incredible, and she and her big thing is the motivational interviewing. Okay. She's got you know multiple streams of income, and she's working on. And I'll send you the the, the interview. Um, but who do you look up to as your mentors? Because like when I'm hearing you. You're talking about things and you figured out how to, how to do certain things, um, that I'm just now learning about when I listen to podcasts, when I read books, when I'm reading blogs. Um so like who are the people who whether in person or virtually kinda like showed you the path? Man,
1: so um first of all I would say my mother.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so my mom is not, she actually, I didn't even know this until I was grown, that at one point my mother was a licensed social worker. Okay. Um, but, but it wasn't because she went to school for it. She was grandfathered in because she supervised social workers.
0: Okay.
1: So, um, but I would say just as a person, she's definitely my, my mentor, my cheerleader. So that's her, um, business wise, um, when it comes to private practice, it would definitely be the guy I used to work for. His name is Albert McIntosh. Um. Um, he is, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm still working to obtain what's what he has going on. Um, and let's see, um, I would say I, I don't know her, um, but I I definitely look up to how um, Joy Hard Dr. Joy Hard and Bradford a Therapy for Black Girls. Mm-hmm. I really I lo- I've, um, I um haven't had a chance to actually listen to the podcast because I just don't have time, but um, I like how she's like kind of branded herself unapologetically. Um, You know, she has the Facebook group. She's got the podcast. She's got this directory, which I think is an awesome idea. Um, And I did like kind of do some messages back and forth with her. But her, um, I would say uh, from a social justice, justice perspective, there's a guy who I look up to. I've had conversation, but not, but only two. And I actually paid him for it. So um, that's Mark Charles. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He is a um, like a social justice pioneer. Um, he's a Navajo man. He lives in D.C. And he talks a lot about um, the doctrine of discovery. And he talks about his um, perpetrator induced tra- um, tra- trauma syndrome, which I kind um, of you, you know look at it from a systems perspective in my dissertation. Um, well, who else? I I, don't know, I I guess those are the people that come to my mind right now in terms of like people who I kind of look up to as models and like I kind of like piece together you know if that yeah. makes sense
0: no I think that's the way that we all do it I think or I speak for myself that's the way that I'm having to to do it you know especially because mm-hmm. I feel like there's not there is some stuff for therapy but there's not like a tremendous amount And and I'm also sure that part of it is also hard to find it you know it's like one of those things right you're not in that that world it's hard to find it and once you get into that world then it this explodes like how did i not know this but it's finding mm-hmm. the, finding the end that is so difficult
1: Hmm. yeah and i think like a uh not necessarily a mentor but like a book that i think was a, a oh a good blueprint i guess you could say would be um What's it called "How to Be a Wealthy Therapist" by Casey Trufo, like though, that series, and Clinton's the CEO. Of, you know, I think that was a good blueprint, you know, in terms of the business model. And I actually believe, like, the guy who I used to work for went to her workshops in California, so he actually like paid the money to do it. So, <clears throat> but yeah, so, and I think, like, for me, kind of like looking, I guess like, there's like a future self in a way. So like, because in my, to me, I feel like yeah, these people are, I like how, I like different things that they do, but I know that it's never going to look like them because it's me, if that makes sense. So I guess there's, uh, I don't know if it sounds weird or hopefully not narcissistic, but I guess in a way I'm looking to like my goals, aspirations, my future self, I guess in a way it's like motivation and as yeah. a, a kind of mentor, so to speak. Yeah.
0: No, so I think like I really do think that we all need to have a compelling future that we're looking forward to right and mm-hmm. the sense of who we know we can be and I think that as children our parents tell us about that you know if, mm-hmm. if you a parents who are really present and really loving um, like they, they they kind of hold you to that we know this is who you can be right you know and I think as a child that that develops physically, right? Like, like your parents don't know that you're not gonna, always going to be one foot tall and they know that you can put the dishes <laughs> into the sink. And then as you're right. told, that develops spiritually and mentally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's absolutely a part of it, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think too, for me, my major motivation actually, when you talk about that um, are my children. So like looking at uh, whether it's um, building generational wealth, whether it's showing them like you can go after your dreams, that you can um, have a balanced life, that you can be educated if that's what you would like to do, um, formally or informally, um, that you can be an entrepreneur, that you that I can I can um, do some social justice work to make this world a better place for you. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think you know people who've done things like that. You know would be like uh, major inspirations for me
0: Mm. man you're speaking to my heart right now (laughs) because i think about the the same thing with with my own kid you know having this so i'm having a son and like it is just wild to think about there's going to be this little person you know Mm -hmm. and i keep replaying my own childhood um in a way that i have not since i was a child (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like Like wow, I'm gonna be the dad to this little kid. Like Mm -hmm. that is just crazy. And what do I want him to know? What do I want him to like learn? What do I want him? What do I want him to just experience about life? You know, Mm -hmm. how do you approach life? What is the the generational legacy that I want to leave? All that, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would
1: say once I became a parent, I became more sensitive. I used to, like, be like, eh, whatever, like, you know, get over it, you know. (laughs) But I would say once I had my daughter, I noticed, like, things that didn't make me, like, kind of tear up started making me tear up, you know. Like, I became definitely, you know, more sensitive. Am I still the most sensitive person? Maybe not. But, you know, I'm definitely, you know, just more sensitive because life becomes um more mean it's more meaningful. It's more it's a it's meaningful in a completely different way. You know. So because you're really trying to to do something to make this world a better world for your kids, I think. So or kid, one or the other, you
0: know? Yeah. So So what's your dissertation about?
1: It is um about um how African American adolescents, I have to close my eyes and read like the title um, how African-American um, adolescents um, who, who've experienced trauma um, basically has how their self-reported level of parental closeness moderates um, what you would expect their um, level of self-esteem to be. So basically, we know, like, there's, you know, some sort of direct relationship between uh, tra- experiencing trauma and self-esteem because that's one of the five areas um, that that are affected by trauma, according to cognitive processing um, therapy theory, and, and other th- therapy theories, kind of you know allude to it as well. Um, but you know, I'm hoping that parental you know closeness will will moderate what you would expect in terms of um, you know lowering self esteem. We yeah, would hope I mean, that it would kind of buffer from that happening.
0: Yeah. yeah. So what kind so, of um. Like what kind of model you're gonna run? That sounds like almost like an SEM sort of deal.
1: I could, but you know what? I'm keeping it really easy, and I'm just doing <laughs> high hierarchical linear regression. Okay. So just multiple ones. Yeah. So and then I'm controlling for um, socioeconomic status, and I'm controlling for single parent household status as well. Okay. So, um, but I mean, we could, you know, do more complicated analyses. But I, a good dissertation is a done one. <laughs> so I'm just keeping it very simple. Something that if something happens, I can just download SPSS for 65 bucks and rerun this data at a moment's notice, and not have to wonder like, what am I looking at? You know. <laughs> um, so, oh my I, I, you know, I may though do some more complicated things with it later on down the line because mm-hmm. um, I I'm, I love using preexisting data because yeah. obviously it's easy.
0: It's so. <laughs> so much better. So, are you going to use the ACE questionnaire with that at
1: all? No, actually, I'm not using ACE questionnaire with that. So, um, so that's okay. So, I do want to use that in subsequent studies, but I'm just using National Longitudinal Survey of these 79 children and young adults. Um, That's just publicly, um, publicly, publicly accessible secondary data set that they collect every even year, and they've been doing it since uh, 19. Let me think. 1986. I don't know. Don't make me lie. I can't remember, but they've been doing it for a really long time. So, um, yes, I'll just be using that. But I am interested in, um, so I'm collecting data in my practice. So everybody takes ACES. So just trying to think about, uh, I don't know what I'm going to, like, I'm I'm probably going to need to add another. I don't know to add another um, questionnaire to kind of correlate it to or whatever, make it interesting. But I definitely want to look at like what I would call developmental, you know, trauma um, and complex trauma, because I feel um, even with people who've not experienced acute traumas, you know, that would qualify you for PTSD um, just that it really affects, it really affects like what kind of partner you're choosing and the relationships that you get in. So not just with the couple, but even with individuals that come in, um, i see a lot of women and you know, there are a lot of themes I should say that I kind of notice in terms of like maybe not finding a partner who is, um, you know, compatible or who is uh, maybe like treating them with dignity and respect and things like that.
0: So for students they probably don't know what the ACE is. Can you talk a little bit about what it stands for and then what it is and how it was developed?
1: Well, I'll do my best. Um, So, Adverse Childhood Experiences scale. Um, and it basically... Um, it measures uh, 10 different... Hold on, actually, I actually printed it. Because I knew we were going to talk about it. Um, so, it measures about 10 different things. Um, so... Basically, like, did you experience verbal abuse or d- were you afraid of being physically abused? Um, did you, uh, were you basically, like, ever ever sexually abused by someone much older than you? Um, things like that. So, basically, it's just, there are just 10 questions. Um, and uh, um, it's just, they're all correlated to negative, most of the studies have been correlated to, like, negative health outcomes. So... Yeah. Yeah, so so things like maybe like diabetes, um, like you high see. blood pressure, yeah, all kinds of just mostly med. How can we put it? Like medica- medically, um, nutritionally, negative health health outcomes. But what I would like to kind of look at is like how can we kind of correlate this to. Um, Uh, maybe the kind of partner that you're choosing um maybe some some relationship indicators so i'm very like really in this like the phase of just being curious and kind of looking at like what's out there um and what can we what can we use to kind of relate aces to from a systemic perspective because it's not happened yet so um we need to kind of look at at relationships because honestly when you look at trauma and you're thinking of it from like an intergenerational perspective, it just kind of re- it kind of repeats itself and then there's this correlation too with um, like addictive behaviors so to speak that so was the, thing
0: too, was the most shocking to me so I, w- I haven't been trained in the aCE there was a like an hour and a half CEU that went around offensively mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about the ace and the mm-hmm. correlations between the number of aces you have and uh, the intensity of your drug use was mm-hmm. just incredible. You know, but
1: it's not completely surprising. No, because, it's
0: not surprising right. at all if you know right. you know what's what's going on mm-hmm. with, with people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, and was,
1: that we know that addiction and trauma are highly, is highly correlated. And and um, when I worked, we had to do our internship at um, Saint, Tom- Saint Thomas, Summa uh, Saint Thomas. well know. but anyway, it was adult behavioral inpatient, and. Um, they were starting to use ACEs on every person that got admitted. Yeah. And I think they said like nine out of 10 people who were admitted had like pretty, you know, yeah. high ACEs scores. So um, but again, we've not looked at anything like from a systems perspective. So that's kind of like yeah. where I'm interested in going, but I don't have like a, a path yet. It's something I've been kind of toying with. And it's really in the back of my mind right now, just because I'm still trying to wrap up this dissertation. <laughs> Yeah, and that's like my, um, that's all research is about, like, get this dissertation written. But so, um, but just kind of just exploring it and looking, um, I think the population I work with would be just be a really good population to kind of do a little like pilot study, you know, um, considering that I primarily work with, you know, African American, um, you know, females and families. So, including couples. So I think that it would just be something very um, helpful, you know, just to kind of look at in terms of, you know, this kind of niche population.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think that would be fascinating. And I think that you're right. I mean, the, what I remember, and I, I used it, I used it with everybody as well. And the questions are questions about relationship and about context. Mm-hmm. You know, like was anyone in your household um, ever in prison? Did anyone in your household ever commit suicide? Like, those are questions about relationships. Were your parents divorced? Were your ex- like, Those are questions about relationships. And you're right, most of the research that I've seen on it also looks at how those relationships affect your physiology. So like obesity, diabetes, uh, IV drug use. Um, mm-hmm. But even in the video, Dr. Vincent Felitti talks about, you know, I wish that Every, I wish that we had a national parenting program. Oh,
1: that would because, be good.
0: Because he says that would be the fastest way to deal with these issues. These are issues of families, you know, and there are mm-hmm. tons of parents who just don't have the skills. And so if we could do some sort of national program where parents were then educated <coughs> to respond to their kids' needs, this, this wouldn't be an issue. And he calls this, you know, one of like, the highest silent public health issue and i'm like wow like, that's, then, that's just profound well he's and not then a psychiatrist a, he's not some woo-woo. he's a boring old you know doctor not even as a, a a psychiatrist he just wants to be some bo- a just a medical doctor just a med yeah so, he, it's undeniable
1: so and so then but so then my i kind of like take it a step further when you're looking at this from a systems perspective so um and i'm just kind of kind of go back i guess in a way to my dissertation is when we're looking at trauma um you know a lot of times we tend to look at trauma just from like the survivor standpoint and you know we can all argue about like does this does this measure ptsd symptoms or not or are these things um you know events that um would would cause a person to be diagnosed with ptsd well some of them for sure like sex you know the sexual abuse and physical abuse and things like that um but anyway, but the, the whole point of it is just looking at it, just from a trauma-informed perspective, we look at individuals' ex- experiences with trauma. Um, but when you like take it up a notch to like maybe the community level of the of the system, and we're looking at um, we you know we all hear the historical tra- trauma kind of thrown out there, and people you know talking about that, but really, um, and, and we don't look at kind of how how does historical trauma impact your health for instance no one's measuring that because it really it doesn't matter whether the trauma is introduced at the individual or the family or the community level it's still going to impact people and it's not just going to impact the the survivor whether that's an individual or the survivor family or the survivor group but it impacts um, you know even perpetrator groups and so I think you know it's not just i think the the answer is even more um broad like i think that parenting classes is, is part of it but i think it's like time for this the nation in general to recognize that everybody is traumatized everybody so not just you know like not not just people who've experienced acute traumas you know growing up yeah. not just survivor groups of you know Um, marginalized um, groups, you know, like Jewish people or African-Americans and Native Americans or people in generational poverty, but even people who are, you know, members of perpetrator groups who are, you know, benefiting from um, things that have happened, um, and and we can certainly see that because, um, how can we put this, because... Um, a lot of avoidance symptoms have popped up in the past couple of years. So, yeah. you know, when we're looking at, you know, the uh, the clusters of the symptoms, clusters of trauma. Yeah. You know, we have, you know, side, re-experiencing, yeah. hypervigilance, di- disassociation, and then avoidance. Dissociation, I mean, sorry, but avoidance pops up a lot in terms of minimizing and denial yeah. and, and things like that. And so I think, um, you know, it's just to me something that's interesting because it's helpful um, and it's the, pretty much the only thing out there at any level of the system that kind of is measuring things, and so it's like, it's kind of really a platform for something else
0: in, in my opinion. Yeah, I so, think, and like what you're saying is just, one of the things that blew my mind about the AIDS was that it was not done on minority populations. Right. Right. It was done on predominantly white middle class populations mm-hmm. and the amount of trauma that was found in that popu- which you would think is a which is a population of privilege in a way right right like, was was incredible it was just incredible mm-hmm. and the thing that was crazy to me was so he, he initially did his research with obesity or people who were morbidly obese and like had health issues due to their obesity and when he presents this information the medical oh. community immediately says no can't happen they're all lying nope right which is a complete <laughs> avoidance right of right. of what of what the, of what is happening in their own communities right and mm. and i just think wow i just think wow like yeah and to me that's been you know hacking into people's lives being a therapist one of the things that's been so eye opening is that these people are also traumatized.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I like, I remember being a kid and there was this myth that there are these people who are out there who are mean to you because you're black, but they're mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. people in their own group. And I no longer believe that. The people that I have met, they are mean to people in their own families. They are mean well, how, to people I mean, in their neighborhoods. Yeah,
1: you can't compartmentalize that.
0: And but the thing that's crazy to me is like I, I, people think that you can. I, I had a buddy once he was like, "Well, what about the Nazi prison, you know guard who goes home and is a loving dad and after working with people? That's a
1: big assumption. That doesn't happen <laughs> right. That's the that largest assu- a big assumption to me.
0: The people right. with these Nazi prisoners, they go home and they beat their wives because they, right. they can't function because they're also traumatized because they were you know immense poverty after World War One. like it just doesn't mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. not that what they did is okay at all.
1: And but it, but it's not just directed toward, right. Yeah. Right.
0: It's yeah.
1: not just, it's just not directed. It just, you happen to just, you know, other people may happen to be easy target. Right. But people who, you know, are perpetrators are just perpetrators. I mean, it's, you know, and that's just, it's not compartmentalized. So, yeah. uh, and I think though that, you know, even when we're looking at, and I guess like when you take, what's my master plan, part of my master plan is to, you know, even world behind peace. the scenes, I'm sorry,
0: world, world peace.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Social justice, though. I like to call it that cause I think it sounds more reasonable. Um, so that's part of my master plan though, is to, is to, um, you know, kind of contribute in a way to like, you know, if you, if you look at things from a, the perspective of like someone is traumatized, it makes the, it, it's, it's a little bit more palatable, and it makes you're actually more empathetic, yeah. you know, and it's also part of externalizing the problem.
0: Yeah.
1: So, like, you know, it's not the person who's the problem. It's the problem. That's the problem.
0: Right. <laughs> the problem is the problem. I love saying that. It's not the person yeah, it's who's the problem. True. It's the problem.
1: That's it's the, the problem. problem. That's the problem. Oh, that's man. It, right.
0: That is and awesome. I
1: mean, and even from a, and even from, a, you know, if you want to get spiritual, right, it's, you know, kind of on that the old adage of love this love the sin wait love the sinner hate the sin so which is the same thing it's the sin is the problem not the sinner yeah mm. so if so if we can you know kind of look at things from that way that perspective it's less triggering it's we're we're better able to um, not re-experience trauma ourselves and we can better soothe ourselves and deal
0: with this
1: issue because this has got to be dealt with
0: yeah i think you're right i think you're right and i I mean one of the things that i've come to believe is that america was born out of trauma absolutely and we it is obvious to see that with black people and it's obvious to see that with like native people but
1: (laughs) but not for perpetrator groups
0: and i think but like, I started thinking about it, and I'm like, you had to be desperate to leave everything you knew, right? For it had to be pretty maybe bad. Maybe the possibility of something in this new place, and then you get to this place, and you land on Plymouth Rock, which I assume is like you know, gravelly, mm-hmm. right? It's rocky. It's not good soil. And you say, I'm not gonna leave. I'm gonna stay in this one spot and do whatever it takes to survive when the people who've been mm-hmm. here for thousands and thousands of years ago no, like we move around because you know that's the best way to like live in this land right now right right like, we right. don't just stay in one place but you go no like this is mine and i'm never going to let go
1: mm-hmm.
0: it had to be pretty miserable where you came from to, to deal with this to, yeah that, that 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 was a better alternative and that gets passed down generation to generation and you get that scarcity shitty mindset and you go i have this i'm never going to let it go Mm-hmm. Which means that anyone else who tries to take it from me or who has to to this or, you know, no, like, and I'm going to make sure that this, that I have as much as I possibly can.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if that means exploiting other people, like, I have to have it or I will die. That's, that's the, that's right. the felt sense.
1: Things had to be pretty bad.
0: Things had to be pretty bad for you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, wow. Like, that's just, that's just, that's wild to think about. Like, that's the problem. That they were. It started out of this incredible trauma. Of we have to leave and go to this new place for possibly a better world.
1: That's, that's- Absolutely. And so, so, so then the question is: as, as a country, we have to kind of engage in some. Um, we have to be able to have uh, a, a coherent, shared story, first of all. So I think you know that first. That's the first part of, of the like the engagement. And so you can even think of it like from a narrative perspective. We've got to be able to, you know, kind of uh, we have to have a shared story because we we can't deconstruct anything and reconstruct it if we don't agree what the story is on what the story is. You know what I mean? So we have to have truth telling and a shared story before we can break anything down to to kind of maybe rebuild on a better and more firm foundation. Mm -hmm. So um, and I think, you know, that's that's the first step. It's, and and it's part of that, that first you're... step is recognizing that everybody yeah. is, tra- has, has, is traumatized as, as, as groups, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, okay,
0: I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I get real passionate about this. I okay. think,
0: I mean, you're speaking my, like, love language right now. Like, I'm just like, this is because whenever, I remember I had a lady over um, after church one day, and we were, you know, older white lady, and we were talking, and she starts telling me about where she grew up. And how her family worked in factories, Mm -hmm. and how um, it was known that anybody who went to work for the factory was going to die, because the needles that they use produce these shavings, and you're in the factory breathing in these shavings all day long, Mm. and so it would shred your lungs, right? Mm. And you think about people like in you know coal country, right?
1: Like Appalachia,
0: whoever's going to go into these coal mines is going to be breathing in this smoke,
1: Mm. and it's just Mm -hmm. like
0: you don't even think about how these other groups are you that is that is horrible it is yeah you turn mm-hmm. 18 and you know i got maybe 10 15 years left and this is what Lord, the rest of my life until my body physically breaks down like mm-hmm. how, how can your whole world not be terror which is that complex trauma that just lurks in the background
1: mhm
0: mhm um, and so like yeah like that's a problem and that's that's where we that's where a part of this country came from. So we are all traumatized. Right. And we're all trying to heal from that.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so and we and, so we, and I think that's like also too why, you know, I don't, I never want to say, um, you know, that things are, you know, just white people are just, you know, I mean, you know, or just black people or that white people or European Americans are, perp, are, are perpetrators. And it's just perpetrator groups because it doesn't necessarily have to be you know, um, necessarily. You know, how can we put it? Uh,
0: too, and, and ethnicity. It's just the pattern, right, that happens.
1: right, right. And so I think though it's yeah. just like we we've got to come to some kind of shared story and a shared truth. So mm-hmm. we've got to be able to do some truth telling first of all. Um, you know, because if if everybody is in denial, which is the avoidance sentence about what the truth really is, you know, and the truth to the best of every, you know, to to the best of everyone's ability. You know, we've got to do it.
0: Yeah. And I, it's, I think what you're saying hits me as well because you can see it on a societal level. And I see it when I talk to people because their immediate reaction is, well, you don't know what my family went through. And they tell these stories, right? And you also see it on an, on an individual level. Right. And I can't tell you how many kids that I have known who have been reenactors mm-hmm. on other siblings or on younger kids. Mm-hmm. And I think because they're so young, they're 13, 14, you know what I mean, 15, 16, that I have this real empathy for them because mm-hmm. I know what happened to them. Right. And it makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just wish that, like you're saying, like that we had that on a larger sort of scale of, yeah, people reenacted their own trauma on other people because they were mm-hmm. traumatized. Mm-hmm. The or they. Problem, or- the, per- the problem is the problem.
1: Right. And the other thing is, I think, too, like sometimes people are not reenactors or or they don't become perpetrators. But when we think about roles, we think of, you know, there are, um, you know, survivors, there's perpetrators there and there are enablers. And then there are and I'm going to use the word like heroes, but that's not quite um, the word I want. But that's what's coming to mind right now. But like advocates, I guess you could say, are people who speak up about it. Does that make sense? Um, Right. So. So. You know, these are the, the the roles that people have, and so sometimes it's not that they're necessarily growing up to perpetrate, but maybe it's that um, you know whether whether it's an individual or a group or a family, maybe they're just growing up watching and being silent about yeah. it, and so therefore being enablers.
0: Yeah, I think so. You're. I was having a conversation. I just got off of work, and I and I work in Louisiana, predominantly mm-hmm. with uh, elderly white people. Okay. Right? And I had a lot of fear going into the work, and I was talking to one of my coworkers today, and I was like, and she's uh, an African American lady, and I was like, can you help me understand something, because I am rarely mistreated by people here. Like, what, like, how is it that every day people aren't just cursing me out of my name? I and mean, these are people who grew up in the '20s and the '30s, right? She's like, you know. I have had the same experience, and when I first came over here, I was terrified. I was like, "Me too."
1: <laughs> yeah, when you said you lived, I was like, oh, "Louisiana."
0: Yeah, right. um <laughs> And I was like, you know, I've I've had. I I remember very clearly. I had a client curse me out. You saw me. You did. I never said anything racial. The lady was out of her mind too. Right. So she was mad at everybody. So if she was going to mm-hmm. say something off the wall, it was you know. She was like, you're going to go to hell. You're not helping me. out." Uh, and what I'm coming to now, and I don't I don't feel fully confident in this, but is I think that we have a lot. I think that we have a small number of people who are perpetrators mm-hmm. and, have a lot and a lot of enablers. enablers.
1: Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. Um,
0: And I I think that the people who are perpetrators, and I think this is in any field. I mean, I I had to read about this in my dissertation studying binge drinking. That the Mm -hmm. people who get all the attention are the ones who are binge drinking constantly and are the constant chronic problems. Mm -hmm. And that shapes the perception of campus. But if you actually study people who are drinking, it's a minority of students who are binge drinking in a way that is is problematic. But they aren't the ones Mm -hmm. who set the narrative right? Because they're not mm-hmm. the ones who are up on stage, are not the ones that you see passed out, they're not the ones. And the more that I just talk to people and live life and talk to people who I would have never talked to if I wasn't a therapist, mm-hmm. the more that I'm like, we have a small number of perpetrators, but a, and lot, a large lot of
1: number of enablers. Yeah. And, and so, but well, here's like kind of like, I think where the problem lies is that when when you ask someone to not be an enabler, there can be a lot of... Re- because of avoidance, okay? Because everybody's traumatized. There can be a lot of resistance and even violent resistant. Yeah. resistance. I mean, I, I, and by violent, I don't mean like physically violent, but like pretty strong, extreme, emotional. Yeah, yes. So... So and I, but again though if, if if I think part of it is you know trying to engage in that having that shared narrative um, and that in that shared truth so it's just like calmly these are the facts yeah Th- those are your feelings but these are the facts yeah you know and you know and and teaching people how to like when you know notice that you're triggered. And then notice how to soothe, and then know how to soothe yourself, so that you know your 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 uh, thinking part of your brain in the front can turn back on, and then you can deal with the facts. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's true. I think that's very true. So, so yeah, so I, yeah, so I, I would, that's, so, that's my like main issue with social justice as it's talked about mm-hmm. in this country. Because it seems to me... And I... I mean, I, I get torn about this. Is that the people who I see advocating for the things that I want to have happen... They do it in a way that I see as clear, clearly triggering for other people. And I'm like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And... I i mean, I haven't completely resolved that. And I tend to say, oh well, you know, you go and do what you gotta do. Because I still want these social changes to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... And then, and people say, "Well, then, should 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 we not act?" I'm like, "No, you can keep acting, but can we do some things in a way that aren't aggressive and that trigger other people? Because people are also traumatized, and I and, well, and I know that that yeah. can be.
1: But so that, there will be some nuanced. triggering, though.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. There,
1: there, because think about it: the people when they when they marched, I'm just going to use Martin Luther King as an example, because now we can all everyone love them now. Okay,
0: right. so. <laughs> He's been, he's been. Now uh, he's he's been vindicated by now. death. He's okay. been palatable. Yeah.
1: He's right. Been, so, yeah. so, you know, the people or the little girl walking Ruby Bridges walking into that school without who, uh, I mean, those were trauma responses. Yeah. So it doesn't. So at some point, like, should it be like that? You are trying to upset people purposefully, or that you're being excitable? No. Excitable and excitable, just don't do right. much, but become more excitable. Yeah. But can you? Should you be calm, like the civil rights movement? And you know, over the, I'm not saying you have to do sit-ins or whatever, but you know yeah. that the spirit of it is being calm, and you're not excited. You're going to there are there are going to be people who are going to be excitable and and who are going to have those symptoms. You can't. You can't, they will be triggered, but that's why it's kind of like, first, you have to have a shared narrative. Uh, I know you're, you know, but anyway, you have to have a shared narrative um, and teach people like, people have to know that they're triggered. So like when you're feeling these things in your body or you're feeling, um, you know, you're, you're having, you know, some sort of emotional response. That
0: makes sense. Yeah, no, um, I completely agree with you, and I think that what you're talking about is what I would love to see happen in the social justice space. I don't, I don't mean, and I'm not nearly as involved in it as as you are, and so maybe you see it better. I do know that when I read, like King and a, a lot of the older people, the the old squad, they would do things like practice. Yes, right? so that they would when practice they go in, yelling and they all that are kind of, able yep. to handle themselves but they're also very intentional about what they're trying to accomplish and i don't see that as much anymore i don't know if that's been forgotten or just been overlooked because we're looking at well
1: now people are just angry
0: yeah yeah right yeah now i completely agree with you and i think that the old guard addressed that and i don't think that's happening as much now
1: now no there is not because it, it isn't that's just the darn truth um but I also think that at this point, you know, and I, one of my friends actually says this a lot. Um, Kevin May, I'll shout him out if he ever listens to this. But anyway, he always says like Martin Luther King brought us to like we were in the we were in the negatives, and he, he brought us to like having a balance maybe like a balance checkbook, but we're still not we ain't rich and we don't have any money. <laughs> you know, and and I mean this by the country just in general. So like civil rights was like bringing you to like. To zero, so I think that with the way this looks is more of a of a policy change. There's maybe more of some law, not some law, but also probably um, by policy. It's going to have to be something like what some of the other countries have done in terms of um, like reconciliation and truth telling committees, but maybe done even better. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and this, and and like this is part of our history. Um, you know, this maybe is what the Constitution needs to look at, look look like. Like maybe there needs to be some changes, like something, you know, even in some of the wording, like yeah. taking out merciless savages, things like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, look, I got to start wrapping this down, but I always want to ask people, um, what do you feel like is on the horizon in terms of like therapy? What do you feel like mm-hmm. is? going to be something people need to be looking at um whether or not a, a modality a theory mm-hmm. a practice whatever
1: mm-hmm. so i definitely think like people becoming um more i guess we are kind of tying this all in what we're talking about is like a people becoming more trauma-informed uh, in in terms of therapy because really like we we're kind of talking about everybody's traumatized so like it's to me to me it's always amazing when i talk to therapists who really have no idea about like how to deal or treat with trauma or even to recognize that somebody is maybe um uh, uh how can I put it like uh manifesting traumatic symptoms or trauma symptoms so i think that's one thing um and i think the other is like for uh, systems thinkers like taking systems outside of the therapy room which is kind of what i what i've been kind of talking with you about is like how can we apply this training and this system's thinking to broader systems outside of just like the family, the couple or the individual, if you want to look at that person as a, as a system in and of itself. Um, and then I think um, the C would be culturally competent care. So I think like when we we're talking about like the ACEs and how, for instance, just kind of norming it or um, conducting more pilot studies on um, various populations or when we're looking at structural family therapy, or uh, contextual, or whatever, you know, just kind of people, I think, are going to um, kind of start building, like, evidence-based practice up, I guess, in terms of, um, of, of of inventory, in terms of theory. I know that's what I'm doing, so, and I think the other people are interested in doing it as well, because um, we are, because more people, because, because the face of, of, of therapists are looking different, so you know than they were when all this stuff first came out, and so people have their beloved populations that they want to help, and they want to make sure that they're doing best practice when it comes to them. So you know it's only right that we make sure that we're uh, making any modifications that we need to make.
0: I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for uh, talk with me. It's been way too long. Um, yeah and we have got to keep in touch better. <laughs> this was great. Absolutely, I enjoyed it so much just and, and, speaking my know, language send,
1: right now. Send your wife my best regards, my I, I mean will. my regards and my warmest wishes, and hope everything goes quick, fast, and smooth. Thank you,
0: thank you so much. Yes, All I right. can't wait
1: to see the announcement on Facebook. Yeah, it
0: might it might not come soon because I'll just be in shock. I'll just be like.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, you want you want to do the good tradition of the first thing he he hears is you blessing him.
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. We're just uh, this, this is an aside, but we're doing a blessing ceremony in uh, June, and I'm so excited. Okay. I already know what I'm going to read over him, and like it's, gonna, mm-hmm. it's gonna be good. Mm hmm.
1: I think they did. I can't remember where we got that from. Was that from the Bible? I don't know. Anyway, it might be a old Jewish tradition, but that's what you. The first thing he hears when he comes out is you have to whisper in his ear yeah. his blessings.
0: Oh, I like that. I'm a, I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. The father's blessing.
0: Oh, man.
1: you know, so All right. can't wait. All right. God, God, God bless later. you guys. All OK, right. bye bye. Yeah.